Hey guys, did you know that codependence is not singularly, say, a problem of being addicted to people or people-pleasing? It's actually a way that we outsource our power or look for our sense of self in the external world and the people and the relationships and the circumstances that we're creating and involved in. I invited Robert Burney on the show today. He is someone that I found years ago when I was doing research on codependency, and he had the most holistic and in-depth way of describing codependency and actually thinks it's a human problem, meaning it's much more widespread than, say, just someone who is in a relationship with an addict. I think you will appreciate his psycho, spiritual, emotional approach to healing codependency, what goes into creating our codependent behaviors, and his description of all the different flavors of codependence. So thank you for being here, and here is your intro. Hey guys, welcome to Whole Human Radio, where I bring you the next generation of transformation topics, guides, teachers, and concepts so that you can develop a deeper, more loving, more holistic relationship with yourself, and as a result, have better relationships within all areas of your life. We are multidimensional beings, and we need to learn how to work with, honor, and acknowledge all aspects of our whole human experience, which is why each week I'll be bringing you uncommon, sometimes unpopular conversations where I deconstruct and demystify these high-level, one-dimensional concepts, self-help topics, empowerment, spirituality, and relationship principles that can sometimes leave us feeling more at war with ourselves, more dissociated, and like we didn't get invited to the secret spiritual sorority where everyone just thinks positive thoughts and it's all of a sudden manifesting magic and happiness all the time. So thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Okay, I've got Robert Bernie with me today. He is someone that I ran into gosh, years ago when I was researching codependency and my own recovery from codependency. And Robert, I just wanted to thank you, first of all, for being here today and joining us at Whole Human Radio. Glad to be here, Megan. (laughs) Yay, thank you. So I want to tell people a little bit about why it was important for me to bring you on today. So Uh, years ago when I was researching codependency, I knew I was a high functioning codependent and was looking for resources and information and recovering or coming out of this kind of positive thinking vortex that I had been plugged into, which had created more wounding on top of other wounding. I found you, um, through some sort of divine intervention or accidental rabbit hole that I went down and you had (laughs) (laughs) the most, uh, holistic, definition of codependency I had ever read or heard about before. And I appreciated that you had this multidimensional approach to healing codependency, which talked about the psycho emotional spiritual aspects of codependency. And you introduced me to, or honestly, you created kind of the safe space for me, if I'm really honest, to go deeper into my core stuff or emotional material because you had so much information out there and then your book codependence the dance of the wounded soul anyway it was just it was a way of looking at and talking about and healing codependency that i'd never read before so that's why you're here today right on right on yeah one of the one of the real gifts of of being in recovery is that in sharing what i've discovered and what i find for me helps other people you know, mm-hmm. that's part of part of what's it's a really I'm really grateful for to be able to help people because and but I'm doing my bottom line motivation is what it's what I need to do for myself. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, yeah. How did you like how, when you say you needed to do it for yourself? Can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, how did you know it was something you needed to do for yourself? Like, was it what does that mean? I, well, I, I didn't really know in the beginning. When I first, I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict, and I've been uh, clean and sober for 35 years as of January 3rd. Congratulations. And when I first got into recovery, 
I heard about codependency, but I heard that codependency was about people who were involved with alcoholics. So I was an alcoholic, so I couldn't be codependent, you know. Right. And, and then I heard also about adult children of alcoholic syndrome, and I wasn't from an alcoholic family, but I paid more attention to that because I saw the symptoms all around me, you know. <laughs> and But as my recovery progressed and as I was, uh, I started working in recovery, I started seeing that the the, the definition of codependency and adult child expanding and merging, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I started, started, you know, well, I had, <laughs> I, I, I had, I, I count my conscious codependency recovery as starting on June 3rd, 1986. And that's actually a, a few months before there was a code, first codependence anonymous meeting, but it was a day when I changed a pattern that I had been, you know, something I'd been shaming myself and judging myself. And, and that's one of the things I realized is as long as I'm shaming myself for doing something, I keep doing it. Uh-huh. Right? So uh-huh. Pay off for the codependence. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that day I, cha- I changed the pattern and I went home and started writing to try to figure out why I was doing that, why I, why I had that pattern. And and the pat- it was, so I had the really spiritual awakening that day and, you know, uh, real, uh, Real that that's when my codependency recovery started, and the the thing the pattern was I had a um, car that I bought when I was three months sober for three hundred seventy five dollars, and I had driven it thirty five thousand miles, and I never washed that car, and I was judging myself for being a slob and for being lazy and stuff. But that day I went and, and washed the car, and I went home and I started writing, and I and what I uncovered just horrified me, because what I what I realized was that even though I, the, I, I, was, I grew up in a shaming religion that taught me that I was born sinful and shameful and I deserved to be punished. Mm-hmm. And I had thrown that stuff out in my late teens, early 20s. I didn't believe it. And intellectually and consciously, I threw it all out. Right. Came to realize that it was still running my life. You know? yeah. And that what I realized, is even though I didn't believe in that harsh gut you know, judgmental God, punishing God anymore, that my core relationship with self, myself was still being dictated by it. And that I realized I've been living my life trying not to show I enjoyed or valued anything, because if I did, God would notice and take it away. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) On some level, I was afraid that if I watched that car, God was going to notice I valued it and it was going to break down. Wow. Magical child thinking, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I said this is horrible. You know, I, I didn't even know what to call it at that point, but I, I realized I would sabotage. I had a pattern of sabotaging good things because I couldn't stand the suspense of God, waiting for God to take it away from me. And that's when I that that's I made a commitment that day to do whatever it took to heal that heal myself and to stop letting that childhood stuff run my life. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's what launched me into it, you know? Okay. So it's, it's so fascinating because that's exactly what I'm always talking about is that there's this huge gap between our intellectual adult selves and like our emotional self. And so, so many of us are so disconnected from that childhood self or that emotional self. It really does take some some self-reflection and honestly, like you said, like kind of like sometimes like a breakdown to even notice that aspect of ourself that's there or underneath all of our intellectual intellectualizations. Yeah. I call it a breakthrough. Yeah. <laughs> yes. A break- because, because I wouldn't go on antidepressants when they tried, told me I should, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so that so that's what kind of got you started in this realization. And then when did you start writing on on your blog and your website? When did you start feeling like? When did you feel compelled to start sharing all this information? How how long after that? Well, I, I didn't start the 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 first my first website until ninety eight. So, but I, what I did is I, I I was working as a therapist in uh, a treatment center in Van Nuys, and um, I. Uh, I had that breakdown, the breakthrough, and I got to go to a 30-day treatment program for codependency. But it, clinically, it was called depression, but it was codependency. You know? <laughs> and there's a there's an old uh, AA saying that says, you know, that AA doesn't open up the gates of heaven and let us in; it opens up the gates of hell and lets us out. 
And what it let, us, let me out into was life, which is what I was drinking because I didn't know how to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so once I started looking at the codependency, and I, and I wasn't willing, after I got that, you know, that June 3rd, 1986, I was actually two years and five months sober that day. And that started my codependency recovery. But I was just doing it mostly for about a year. I wasn't willing to go into the emotional stuff yet. Because there's really, there's, we need to both do, do both the intellectual and the emotional. You know, one without the other doesn't work, you know. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, so, but what what happened is in, in the following year, 87, at my birthday, I set myself up to be abandoned on my birthday, which is one of my patterns, is I would expect somebody who was unavailable to be available on my birthday or on Valentine's Day or on New Year's Eve or something like that. And then they wouldn't be available. And then I'd feel horribly crushed, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what started me getting willing to go into the emotional healing, you know, and I actually ended up calling a guy who I had heard of. I was living in Studio City and he was over in Santa Monica. And I, I heard of this guy that did inner child work with people. So I called him and he said that, that he wasn't doing it anymore. He was moving to Hawaii to build houses, but I could come over and talk to him while, while he was packing. <laughs> so I went over and talked to him. I don't remember a single thing that guy said that night. But I, or that day, but I was sitting on this chest in his his living room, and I just remember feeling like I'd opened Pandora's box and all the monsters were loose now, because mm-hmm. I'd taken an action to open up to the emotions, you know. Yeah. And so, and the the kind of cute thing about that story is that on that on that day, at that point, I was working at a, at a hospital in Pasadena, and I my birthday, the one I got abandoned. I got a bunch of birthday cards at work and somebody said something about you should let so-and-so read your cards. And I said, read my cards. And she said, yeah, she's a psychic and she reads greeting cards. And I thought that was the silliest thing I'd ever heard in my life. You know, she reads greeting cards. <laughs> That's crazy, you know? Yeah. And it was somebody who was like part-time on the unit. She was at arts and crafts or something. I don't remember what she, but, but uh, next time I saw her, I said, you know, oh, I hear you read greeting cards, you know. <laughs> and I thought, I just, you know, ha, ha, ha. And she said, yes, I'm a psychic. And among other things, I read greeting cards. And I said, well, I have to have you read my cards one of these days. Ha, 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 you know. <laughs> and one day, a week or so later, she walks in and says, I need to talk to you right now. And <sighs> sorry, no, it's going to get so emotional here. But <laughs> no, it's okay. You know, Part of the part of the miracles on my path, you know. Yeah. And so she just proceeded to read my mail and tell me all the stuff that was going on inside of me that I was putting up all this energy into keeping hidden from other people because I was trying to keep up appearances, you know, because that's part of the codependency. And I was just sat there shocked that she was under that she knew about all this inner turmoil I had. And then she asked for my greeting cards, and I handed her the greeting cards. I'd kept them there at work. And every one of the greeting cards that year had at least one one musical note on it. And she said, this is about the song you're becoming. And I knew she didn't mean a literal song, you know, yeah. <laughs> that more I was talking about my spiritual path. But but I set up an appointment with her for like in two weeks for a paid psychic reading. And in the meantime, I got the song. <laughs> I was walking down the street in Studio City one day, and I got the song. <laughs> and so when she came, I said, "No, I know, I know you didn't mean a literal song, but I got the song." You know? <laughs> and I started saying the words of the song, and I made one of those Freudian slips. That's perfect, because you know when I first started going to uh, Coda meetings, I would talk about how I was set up by fairy tales. To, to, you know, to, to believe that there was some, you know, happy ever after to get to. And I would talk about what I called the frog princess syndrome, where I felt like an ugly frog and I thought I needed a princess to turn me into a prince, right? Yes. <clears throat> well, when I started saying this song, as I, like I said, I made the Freudian statement, I started saying the words of the song, Jeremiah was a boy frog, <laughs> was a good friend of mine, never understood a single word he said, but he always helped him drink his wine, you know? And that song... The chorus of that song is "Joy to you and me, joy to the fishes and or joy to the fishes and deep, deep blue sea and joy to you and me," and that ended up being the name of the company I formed to publish my book, <laughs> "Joy to You and Me Enterprises," and she channeled a, a message to me from my inner child, and what my inner child said basically was that I could see. <laughs> 
the pain and the and the anger and the and the grief. But what I wasn't seeing is that on the other side of that was the joy and the love and the peace. Yeah. And that who my inner child was was my wounded soul. Mm-hmm. And that's where part of, part of, you know the title of the book came from. And the the, the the you know my my higher power has a really interesting sense of humor. But uh, <laughs> you know one of the, part of the the whole the, the funny stuff about the story is I used to in early recovery I'd be out with some other recovering people at a, a arts and crafts fair or something. And somebody say, oh let's get our tarot cards reader or let's go to a psychic. And I would pontificate about no I've looked outside my long enough I want to find my answers inside if my higher power wants to get a message to me through a psychic my higher power can bring the psychic to me and that's exactly what happened <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that's the most beautiful story I want so I want to back up for just a second before we continue on through some of this grief and 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 joy through pain stuff because you were the first very first person to talk in depth about this and the inner child and how that's connected to our soul. But before we go into that material and that, and that topic, let's talk about your broader definition of codependence, because so many of us associate codependence as the people that are drawn to addicts or that are in relationship with addicts or who have parents that are addicts. So if you Let's talk about codependence and your understanding. Yeah, that was the original definition of the word codependence. It actually, the the term arose out of the Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, out of the alcoholic recovery movement. And when they first, uh, you know, AA was the first time that they ever found a way to successfully deal with alcoholism when it was founded in 1935. And by the 1950s, there were they started treatment centers, alcoholism treatment centers. Excuse me, and those those treatment centers were based like AA was on they focused on the alcoholic, and they were didn't pay much attention to the significant others or family members, you know, and they, but they started noticing that there were some patterns of behavior patterns in common, so they had to come up with a term for it, and the term they came up with for it was co-alcoholic, and it was really a literal alcoholic with, and the belief was that people you know, involved with alcoholics got sick because of the alcoholics drinking behavior. And then the sixties came along as sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, and by the end of the sixties, the government was putting money in the treatment centers, but requiring them to treat addiction also. So they had to change the term from co-alcoholic and, you know, alcoholism treatment centers to chemical dependency treatment centers and co-alcoholics became codependents. And the belief was still pretty literally that, you know, the, alcoholics, the people around the alcoholics and addicts got sick because of the alcoholics and addicts. By the mid-50s, well, in the late 70s, what was happening was there was different research going on in different areas. Uh, some people were like Claudia Black were researching what the effect it had on children, on adults who had grown up in alcoholic families. And the first, uh, you know, that she coined the term adult, adult child and, and uh, the first uh, adult children of alcoholics. 12-step meeting started in 1979 in, in New York City. And then there also was some research going on in, in the area of family systems dynamics. And they started talking about dysfunctional families. Nobody ever talked about dysfunctional families before that. You know, families were just this wonderful thing, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, the, we have this whole myth about how families are this loving, wonderful thing. And it's not true. Right. <laughs> Right. They started about and the first of the inner child books started coming out about that time. So that by the mid '80s, uh, people like Pia Melody and Melody Beatty and, and John Bradshaw were talking about the, you know dysfunctional families and, and codependency as a disease in and of itself. Because what had been realized by that time is that uh, the codependents weren't sick because they were with alcoholics and addicts. They were with alcoholics and addicts because they were sick. Mm-hmm. You know because mm-hmm. they were attracted to them because of their childhood experiences. And even into the late 80s, they were still talking about, uh, they talked about codependence. At tra- traditional, the traditional codependent was the people pleaser, rescuer, enabler. You know? Right. Well, but they also talked about counterdependence, which they talked about alcoholics being counterdependent. And I think I was the first one that ever said that codependence and counterdependence are two different spe- ends of one spectrum. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. Because what I believe, codependence is an ego defense system adapted in early childhood to try to help us survive. 
and and uh, it, the 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 range of codependent behavior. There's a whole range of codependent behavior. I like to say sometimes it's kind of like Baskin and Robbins. There may be 64 flavors, but it's all ice cream, you know. Right. So <laughs> the codependent, the, the traditional codependent, the people pleaser, is like addicted to other people and trying to please other people. But on the other, other end of the spectrum, the counterdependent is somebody who who convinces themselves they don't need other people. So they're both reacting to the fear of abandonment, fear of betrayal, fear of rejection, you know, mm -hmm. but it's just two different strategies of how to deal with that. And that's what, you know, what, what codependency is, is I believe it's an ego defense system. And that, uh, that part of what's so, what's so important to, to get in terms of for people to really start being able to focus on the core relationship, because it's that core relationship with ourselves we need to change. Mm -hmm. you know, the the way well the way you know codependency works is once we start looking for answers I and mean, we get to be adults and we we start acting like we know what we're doing and it takes a little while to figure out we don't you know <laughs> and then we start looking for some answers and we discover we have some issues and patterns and then we try to control the issues and patterns at the same time we're judging and shaming ourselves for having issues and patterns you know because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. codependence causes us to feel like the victim of our own thoughts and our own feelings and like our own worst enemy you know. And so one of the biggest things to do is to really get it that we were powerless to do anything different. As long as we were reacting to the old wounds and the old tapes, we were powerless and we need to forgive ourselves so we can really start loving ourselves. Uh -huh. And the, the part of what's so important to get is it, that codependency has to do with the natural child developmental process. Right. The part of a child's brain that understands cause and effect and logic and abstract concepts like time or death doesn't fully develop until around seven years old. I know. That's what they call the age of reason. That's why they call that the age of reason. You know, that's why my grandson, a few months after his seventh birthday, on the way to school one day, all of a sudden he pipes up and says, how does Santa Claus get to every house in the world in one night? You know, because yeah. his, his mind was maturing. He's realizing that's a ridiculous concept. But prior to seven, children are egocentric and magical thinking. Mm -hmm. So when we're little kids, our parents are our higher powers. They're the God and goddess in our life, and we have no realistic perspective of them whatsoever. You know, When we're small, we're not capable of processed thought. We're not capable of saying to ourselves, wow, mom must be really stressed out. That's why she's yelling at me. You know, We just know mom's yelling at us. You know? yeah. And so what happens is any kind of abuse or deprivation, any lack of bonding, Anything in the environment that's uncomfortable, fighting, anxiety, depression, alcoholism, whatever is going on in the family, we end up internalizing and feeling like it's our fault because we're the center of the universe as far as we know. Right. And that's where the core of the disease comes from. It's what I call toxic shame. And the difference between guilt and shame, in my definition, is that guilt is about behavior. I did something wrong. I made a mistake. Shame is about our being. Something's wrong with me. I'm a mistake. Mm -hmm. It's this place deep down inside where we feel somehow unlovable and unworthy because our parents were wounded and didn't know how to love themselves or be emotionally healthy. Right. And that feeling that there's something wrong with me is the foundation that we built our relationship with ourselves on. Right. Right. And so the ego adapts an emotional and behavioral defense system to try to control our behavior and emotions so we fit into the rules of our dysfunctional family. You know? Mm -hmm. And children, children are born manipulators. You know, that's part of their job is to manipulate their environment to survive. So a child will adapt whatever works. You know, being cute is what works. If throwing temper tantrums is what works. If being the good child is what works. If being invisible is what works. That's what a child will adapt. And the neurological researchers nowadays say that the neural pathways in our brain that relate to relating to other human beings are pretty well set by the time we're four or five years old. Wow. I hadn't read that it was four or five, but wow. Yeah, how, how scary is that? Basically, our relationship patterns are set in our neural pathways about the time we're, by the time we're five. And we never get taught how to change those neural pathways. Mm -hmm. You know, One of the things I talk about in my first book is that how I believe that the more civilization progressed, quote unquote, the more it distanced itself from having any kind of respect for nature and natural laws, the more dysfunctional it got in terms of the individual beings, feelings of belonging, feelings of being a part of. Mm -hmm. And that the healthier societies in the history of the planet that in this regard were aboriginal societies who had respect for nature and natural law because they had to survive. And like the Native Americans, when children reached adolescence, they had training and initiation rights to teach them how to be adults. Uh -huh. They had ceremonies to welcome them into their power. 
we got sent to junior high school right and tortured right right i know i was tortured <laughs> we, we learned how to be adults in junior high school and high school mm-hmm. you know is any wonder the world so screwed up mm-hmm. hey guys megan blanchard here thank you for listening in today it was a perfect time to take a break and take a breather stretch it out tell you thank you and ask you to subscribe to the show in itunes and leave us a five-star review also you can find us in stitcher and Spotify, and Google Play, pretty much anywhere you can find your podcasts. And if you're inspired by what you're hearing today, would you please share it with a friend or blast it out on social media and tag me at Megan Blanchard. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Also, um, you can come find me at my website, which is MeganBlanchard.com. That's Megan with a Y. And in my private Facebook tribe, which is called Whole Human Tribe. So thank you for being here and listening today. Enjoy the rest of your show. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't ever get taught how to change those neural pathways. You know, and that's one of those things I had said for years that doing the inner child work, we could change the neural pathways in our brain. But I didn't even really know what a neural pathway was. You know, it was an intuitive thing until I saw the secret. Or not not, not the secret, the what the bleep. Okay. What the bleep. Yeah, what the bleep? What the bleep? Yeah. Are you talking about or something? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. It, it had animation of the neural pathways in the brain and how you could, you know, change them and everything. So, but anyway, the the the, the so we get this programming, <laughs> we get this emotional wounding and this intellectual programming in early childhood, and we base we we develop a relationship with ourselves with we've learned how to relate to ourselves to life and to other people in early childhood from people who are wounded in their childhood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we grew up in cultures that teach us a whole bunch of dysfunctional stuff. It's like the the uh, ego is not a bad thing or a negative thing. It just got programmed really badly. Right, right. Well, that's what I always tell people. I'm like, your ego isn't something that you can get rid of, and you don't even like you want to use like the stuff that you the patterns or the dysfunctional stuff as an access point instead of trying to like just dismiss it or bypass it or sidestep it. And um, it's trying to protect us. It yeah screwed up ways <laughs> right and you know what this is this is something i wanted to ask you robert have you ever met because this is something i think about a lot have you ever met anyone who's not from a dysfunctional family or stressful family in some way that's just totally unscathed by family of origin issues no i i believe that codependency is the human condition as we've inherited it that's what I thought. Okay, that's what so I thought. That, that, that thing, you know, that's why you know the subtitle of my first book is that you know codependency and the human condition. You know, a cosmic perspective on codependency and the human condition. When I, I got a master's degree in what they called human relations, and it was like early seventies. It was a interdisciplinary thing that was a result of the sixties and everything. And so I had sociology and psychology and all this stuff together. But the thing that I learned to focus on was to look at the dynamics of something. You know, like if you're in a group. If you're in a group, you know, uh, in a group setting, you want to look at the dynamics of what's going on, not just what's being said, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I focused on the dynamics. And when I started looking at codependency and adult child syndrome, I, I started seeing it every place, you know, on all levels. It's on, on personally, it's in families, it's on it's on a societal level. It's part of the human condition as we've inherited it, you know. And and I believe that this is a new age, and that. That we are, we have the tools and knowledge to 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 heal it now that we've never, the human beings have never had before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so another way of saying that's the age of Aquarius has has dawned. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But uh, but we have the tools and knowledge to to do this healing and the guidance to do this healing that that human beings have never had before. This has been going on for thousands of years. This dysfunctional, because you know. In my book, I talk about the planetary conditions that I believe started this stuff. And the original condition was that the lower mind, the the energy field of collective human intellectual consciousness, got polarized. So we started seeing things as, started seeing yin and yang as separate forces in in conflict. Right. I think you were the first guy to ever talk about integration, or at least that I ever heard talking about integration and this black and white thinking, this polarized thinking. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the and that's the the nasty stuff, and that's what causes us to feel separate from each other and separate from the planet. So we can have violence and we can destroy the planet, you know, because we because we grew up in a spiritually hostile environment where spiritually hostile, which be, believes it is based on separation, not connection. 
like the Native American spiritual beliefs are based on connection, that the great spirits are present in everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. But Western civilization was based on subdue and conquer and, you know, and, and being separate from everything else. Right. But so you bring up a good point. And I, so if we can go off on a bit of a tangent here, because this has sure. been coming up in some of my other interviews, and I know my audience will appreciate this, but there's also a problem in our westernized spirituality self-help systems, which is, is that we try to jump to this unity, oneness, consciousness before we even do the integration, self-connection work and so it's like this other form of bypassing our material if we just contemplate our true nature and our oneness and connectedness without having yet gone into the self right because you know the thing is we need to change the 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 program we need to change the intellectual stuff uh -huh. and start seeing life differently because we were set up to come from a victim place by the programming but we also need to do the emotional healing. And a lot of people want to skip the emotional part because that's the messy stuff, you know. Yeah. And, but we can't, you know, the thing is we can change our programming and, program, you know, program intellectually to, to see things from a spiritual perspective. But that doesn't make the grief and anger from the past go away. Right. You know, <laughs> yes. it's still there and it's still running the show, you know, because if we haven't dealt with the childhood stuff, then what what happens is that we're still reacting to the to the childhood wounds and programming in the relationships where our hearts involved. Mm -hmm. You know, we can we can get healthier and learn to set boundaries and stuff with people relatively easily with people we don't care about. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, the it's the people we care about that's so hard. You know, right? Or the people that trigger our wounding or our imprints or yeah. our stuff. Yeah, it's like I totally understand. Identify yeah. with that. And when we're reacting, when we're being triggered, we're not being present in the now. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're reacting to what the child felt then. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're doing that, we're not being present. We're not listening. We're not hearing. We're not you know we're not able to take to communicate on any kind of healthy way because we're not present. Right. We're not connected. So how so the childhood stuff, the emotional material. I emphasize that all the time. How do you start to get there? And how do you know if it, like, cause there's so much, so much, so many of us have it suppressed or we're so disconnected from it. So how right. do you start to get there? Well, we have to, we have to start, you know, child work in one way is detective work. You know, yeah. we have to start paying attention to the cause and effect in our life and start asking ourselves, why am I attracted to this kind of person? Why, you know, why is this happening? And just, we need to start being the detective. We, so the first step is to develop a detached, objective observer perspective. Uh -huh. And really be able to start observing what's going on inside of ourselves. Start observing our own mind and recognizing what we call, what I call the critical parent voice. Right. Which is disease programming that's coming from a black and white, shame-based, fear-based, you know, place mm -hmm. and it's not telling us the truth you know i used to just think that's the way i thought i didn't realize everybody has a critical parent voice and it's due to this in it's environmental it's conditioned reflexes and it's not telling us the truth and so we need to one of the big steps is to start in order to change our relationship with anything we need to change our perspective of it you know i i use an example in my book of the the old joke about three blind men describing an elephant by touch you know and they, they each one speaking his own truth, they just have a lousy perspective, you know, and that's basically what codependency is, is we have a lousy perspective of who we are and what the meaning and purpose of life is. Mm -hmm. And the meaning and purpose of life, in my definition, is a spiritual evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. And that that's why we're here is to learn these lessons and settle karma. And uh, so where was I going with that? Oh, well, <laughs> the wounded, the inner emotional wounded child stuff to start looking at uh, the cause and effect and sort of need to be able to develop this detached observer witness perspective that can watch what's going on inside and can start telling the difference between the critical parent voice and our intuition can start telling when we're reacting out of the old old wounds and the inner children so that we can start getting more internal discernment you know and the thing about this observer perspective, you know one of the things i always ask people when i start talking about the observer perspective is i ask them if they've been involved in any any Eastern meditation practices, because they teach an observer perspective in the meditation practices, but it's a passive observer. Mm 
Right. You observe your thoughts and your feelings, but you don't actually change anything. Or you don't really get in touch or go into relationship with the aspect of yourself that was feeling these things or thinking right. these things. Right. Yeah. So some people use meditation as a form of antidepressant to say disassociate from their feelings. Uh-huh. And that doesn't work. You know, we're, as long as we're dissociated from our feelings, they're still running the show. You know? yeah. And so the observer that I teach people is a proactive intervening observer where we actually go in and change the ego programming, actually, you know, change the neural pathways in our brain doing doing the inner child work. Right. You know? So I mean, we need to start setting internal boundaries to start being able to sort things out. Like one of the things that's real important to realize is that the, the, the way the disease works is that we are attracted to and attract to us people who feel familiar. And the reason they feel familiar is because they're recreating childhood emotional wounds. It was so important for me to realize if I met somebody that felt like my soulmate, I better watch out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that didn't necessarily mean we're going to live happily ever after because there is no happily ever after. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so I needed to, to start, you know, because what the problem was is I'd met somebody that I felt this familiar feeling with. And then I had I had this desperately needy, desperately lonely inner child who starved for love and attention and affection and touch and all the good stuff. And so I jump right in. I want that so bad that I ignore all the red lights and warning signs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? And the, the, people tell us who they, people tell us who they are pretty quickly. We need to recognize the red lights and warning signs. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that that, um, that same pattern kind of holds true for like family dynamics? I'm thinking of um, a family dynamic in particular, like say your in-laws or maybe you marry into a family and there's a lot of dysfunction going on. I see a lot of times people externally focused on trying to change or fix these people. They're constantly triggered by these family members, but it's it's because they haven't yet gotten in touch with the inner child patterns and imprints and feelings yet. And they're still reacting. They're still trying to change someone that they're powerless over. Yeah. Well, the bottom, the bottom line with recovery to me is about learning to live the serenity prayer in our lives. Mm -hmm. And what's really important to realize is we were programmed to live the serenity prayer backwards. We got the message that we should be in control of things we can't control like other people in life. Yeah. And we did not get taught how, how to have any effective control over the things we can control because we've been trying to control ourselves with shame and judgment and fear. Right. And when we shame and judge ourselves, the rebel in us rebels. And that's what I call my book, the battle. We do what the battle cry of codependence is. I'll show you, I'll get me. Mm -hmm. Somebody hurts me so that I do something to hurt myself because I go to one of my old tools for going unconscious and nurturing myself, you know, alcohol or drugs or food or sex or whatever it is. Or unhealthy relationships. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do, and I do something to, to hurt myself because you hurt me, you know. And so we really need to get that, you know, we don't have any control over most everything. Right. What we do have some control over are is our attitude towards the things we don't have control over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yep. the key. That's the key to finding some serenity in life, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then using that. Thing that we're trying to control the awareness of the thing that we're trying to control that we don't have any control over having the awareness to as an access point for the healing work or the inner child work like at, like having that sort of detached objective observer and going you know being the detective and finding yeah. out why and why am i reacting this way how old am i feeling right now yep when does this remind me of from my childhood Mm -hmm. You know, we always have the things that are pushing our buttons today is not the is not the main issue. The main issue is back in our childhood. Right. And the reason this is triggering us is because there's something in the past we need to heal. Uh huh. Right. Is and, and and so we don't. So I, we. So you and I don't oversimplify this, and so the people understand. It's not that you are saying or I'm saying that there aren't going to be difficult people in our lives or people that we need to set boundaries with, but what we're saying is that when we've done some of this inner child work and have a better or more inner healthier internal relationship with ourself, it's easier to sort of consciously discern these, the appropriate placement for these people in our lives and set boundaries right. and 
walk away or whatever it's, we need to do. More, you know, big part of code passage is learning to stop taking other people's behavior personally. And with, with this starting childhood, you know, our, the way our parents treated us wasn't personal. They couldn't see who we are as separate individual human beings. Mm -hmm. They projected their stuff on us, you know, mm -hmm. and they were dancing with their wounds. So they, the way they treat us really didn't have anything to do with who we are. Right. But we felt it felt completely personal. Mm -hmm. You know, so we grew up taking other people's behavior personally. And we need to learn to stop doing that and start developing that detachment and seeing ourselves, seeing ourselves with from a detached place so that we're not, you know, buying into the old judgments and shame. But that helps us to see other people and to realize that they're reacting from their wounds. Yeah. And so it helps us to not take it so personally when we when we when we start realizing that we have these reactions and they do too, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the more that we can see things from this detached perspective, then the more the easier it becomes to to make some discerning choices about who trust. You know, I used to to trust. You know, I I, I picked unavailable people to love and untrustworthy people to trust. I picked the biggest. I I tell my secrets to the biggest gossip around, <laughs> and then feel horribly betrayed. You know. And that was my ego's way of trying to get me to think I shouldn't trust anybody or believe I ever deserve love, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I should never trust anybody. I, should, I need to make better choices about who to trust, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I just, you know, after I went through, I went through treatment for codependency, you know, like I said, in, well, I don't know if I said that. In my fifth year of sobriety, I went through treatment for codependency in Arizona. And a couple months later, I was in up in Sedona, you know, out in the beautiful Red Rock Desert. And I was thinking about how wonderful it's going to be now that I learned how to do the grief work and how to, you know, to 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 have healthy, how to do set boundaries and all this stuff. Thinking about how wonderful it's going to be now that to have all these wonderful relationships. And two things happened simultaneously. One was the waft of skunk smell. Came floating through, and the other, this mad-looking dog came tearing out of the underbrush, barking and snarling, and ran right past me. A dog may have been chasing a skunk. I don't know, but I stood there a minute, and I—I I mean, I was really—it's really obvious to me sometimes when my when my higher power is sending me a message because of the timing of things, you know. Yeah. I stood there a minute and said, "Okay, I get it. I still have to watch out for the mad dogs and the skunks." <laughs> <laughs> and the mad dogs are the really aggressive bully codependents. That are aggressively trying to control people, and the skunks are the martyr victims who are spraying guilt and shame around. <laughs> you know? I know some of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we want to stay away from them. You know. Yeah. Um. So I appreciate also that you talk so much about this this grief work and this unheard grief and unresolved grief and that this is kind of the gateway to healing our inner child. Um, is that something that you found just so the detached observer perspective is that, do you have in that definition somewhere when you're talking to people and working with people, or do you ever have to teach them how to also be, a loving, compassionate, kind, safe space. Because I find that in the work that I do with women, the grief work doesn't really happen because I don't yet have access to self-compassion, self-kindness. They're not right. a safe space yet. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why it is so important to develop the observer perspective and to start, you know, part of what we need to do. The first thing I teach people in terms of the internal boundaries, because that's the real key. And I found is just be able to set internal boundaries. And first thing I teach people is how to set boundaries of the critical parent voice. And one of the main tools in doing that is positive affirmations. Okay. And we need to, you know, I, when I first started doing positive affirmations, I, uh, I, I didn't feel a while and I quit. And I didn't feel a while and I quit because they didn't feel like the truth. Mm -hmm. What I had to realize is that I, what I need to do is I need to counter program to what I'm feeling because what I'm feeling is not telling me the truth if I haven't done the healing. You know, it's like, like we, we grew up in emotionally dishonest, dysfunctional cultures that taught us to have a really screwed up relationship with our own emotions. And so what happens is when we get triggered is, you know, like when I first got into recovery, I had to learn to like counter program to what what I was feeling in order to start seeing the truth because our emotions are a vital part of our being. They're what actually tell us who we are. We have all those emotional reactions that are not telling us the truth. Right. 
Because when we react out of the inner child wound, we're, we're, we're reacting out of what the child's, you know, we're feeling what the child was feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I had to start counter-programming to what I was feeling in order to start getting more clarity and see things more clearly, including my emotions, you know. And so in early recovery, I had this place I would go, I called the abyss, which is like this internal bottomless pit of pain and shame where I just want to die, you know. Yeah. When I got into that place, it felt like I'd been there forever and I was going to be there forever, you know. And so I had to start counter-programming to it because that wasn't the truth. So what I started saying, because somebody suggested in AA, was this too shall pass. Yeah. Because that's the truth. It does pass, you know. Yeah. But I it didn't feel like it was going to pass, you know. So I, what I realized is I needed to counter-program to what I was feeling in order to start seeing things more clearly. So I had to start, and in, in the 12-step programs, they have some really good uh, sayings, really re helpful sayings. And the ones that work in this case are, uh, fake it to you, make it, or act as if. Yeah. I had to start acting as if I was lovable and worthy, even though it didn't feel like it. I had to start acting as if there was a loving higher power, even though it felt like God was a sadistic asshole who was punishing me. <laughs> you know? I had to start counter-programming in order to start seeing them more clearly. And what I realized with the positive affirmations that I need to fake it. So I mean, if I had been taught as a child that I was a magnificent spiritual being, I was here in body temporarily going to boarding school, and I was going to learn some lessons and have some adventures, I wouldn't have to do positive affirmations today. Yeah. You know, I have to do positive affirmations because I was taught the opposite. You know, I was taught that I was born sinful and shameful, and I deserve to be punished. Mm -hmm. And so how could I love myself? That's emotional abuse, I think. You know? mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, so I had to start, and I realized that the critical parent voice is negatively affirming me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a day. Yeah. And that's on a good day. You know, it can get up in the thousands on a bad day. So I had to start counter-programming to those, those negative affirmations with positive affirmations that affirmed my worth as a spiritual being, you know, mm -hmm. instead of buying into what the critical parent voice was saying. So we need to start creating a safe space inside by standing up to that critical parent voice yeah. and start being the loving parent to those inner child wounds. You know, part of a parent's job is to set boundaries. It's a parent's job to set boundaries. It's a child's job to test the boundaries, but they need to be consistent, loving boundaries. Inconsistent boundaries make children feel very insecure and unsafe. You know, they need consistent boundaries to know they're loved. And so we need to be, start being loving to ourselves because, you know, like we 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 need to set boundaries with the inner child. You know, it's like it's that desperately needy, desperately lonely child that wants to text message the other person fifty times a day. You know, <laughs> that thinks they're going to die if they lose the relationship. You know, uh -huh. and so we need to we need to talk to that inner child and no, honey, we're not going to do that today. That's not a good idea. You know, yeah. what are you going? Yeah. What are you really trying to? What are you really trying to get here? What are you saying? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and to, to stop letting that, you know, that child in us look for the love from people who can't give it to us. You know? Right, right. And I think, I think ultimately you were the first person who kind of made it clear to me that it's this grief, emotional, inner child work that is really the way we start to experience and show ourselves our own love, basically, and, and start to self-soothe and reparent and become this loving space. Cause it's, it's like if we are bypassing over this grief work through whatever means, whether that be whatever addictive means or whatever bypassing means we choose, we're actually not ever really showing ourselves love because we're not dealing with that inner child stuff. Right. And we're still going to be reacting when somebody pushes a button. Right. You know, right. The, the reason the buttons have power is because it's repressed pressurized energy. Mm -hmm. You know, the emotions are actual energy that manifests in our body. And, you know, I, in my book, I, I talk about emotional truth with a small T and truth with a capital T. And the emotional truth, the, the emotional, what it feels like, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with reality or with truth with a capital T. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that and not let that, that emotional truth, of, you know, from the, from the wounds, be what's running our life. You know? Right. But it, but it does need to be acknowledged in some way. Yeah, like yeah. It needs to be acknowledged and then it needs to be released. That's yeah. that energy needs to be released. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, 
am always trying to help people to understand. That's why I brought you on is because so much of what we do in life, it's like we're re, especially if we're a high functioning codependent, you know, very empowered type A, good little girls, good little boys, or using using positive thinking or whatever it is that we're using to sort of bypass. We're actually re-wounding ourselves the exact same ways we were wounded in our childhood, in our family of origin through lack of attunement, lack of attention, not listening, you know, um, not feeling safe or heard or seen, etc. Right. Right. And we, we don't know ourselves if we haven't done it, you know, we haven't yes. Really- yes, you're right. Cause that fault. So that, that brings up a good point because there's so much of a lot of the self-help world will tell you, well, that's a false self. So just don't believe that it's true or just detach from it. But what you're actually saying or inviting people to understand is that it is actually part of ourself. It's just not the only truth of ourself, or it's not the part of ourself that we want well, running the that, show. That false self has more truth in it than it does false. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, we don't believe it. We think we're fooling them. Yeah. You know? So other people could see into us and could see our beauty and see, you know, how wonderful we are. Yeah. But we don't believe it. Yeah. You know? Opening up to receive is one of the biggest chores for us. Just learning how to take in positive stuff instead of, you know, deflecting it with humor or minimizing it or putting it back about it because we don't know how to take it in. You know, I I used I, I had to spend a lot of energy just saying thank you, period, learning to say thank you, period, when I got positive feedback because I thought when somebody was being nice to me, it was a plot. So you know? did I, Robert. They so were did like, I. Oh, they were like out to get something from me or they were really mentally ill and I needed to fix them. (laughs) That's so funny. My sister and I talk about that all the time. Like if someone compliments us, we're like, they're just saying that to make us feel better. That's a total lie. Like that's how we used to be. But anyway, that's so funny. I'm so glad I've never heard anyone else say that before. Maybe no one else has admitted that before, but, um, yeah, but so, so the, you know, the false self really has more truth in it than, than false, but we don't believe it and we don't know it. We don't understand. We don't own it, you know. Uh-huh. And that's why it's so important just to really own who we are, and to to um, start sorting that out and getting clearer on it, you know. And 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 you know, just to get to know ourselves and get, you know, I I I had I had so it took the whole long process learning to start being emotionally honest. Yeah, and that that's a good point for me to ask you, I have two last questions that I wanted to ask you is, is this isn't like a one-stop shop? Is this like a lifetime journey? I mean, does it get easier? What has been your experience? Well, it gets easier, but it never ends. It's, it's what codependency recovery work, inner child work is about, is about learning to have the, the, the choice and the possibility of being present and being alive today mm-hmm. is there's no destination to reach where we're going to be all fixed. Right. You know, the, the, the wounds have less power as we grow and as we heal and we catch them sooner. Yep. But that doesn't mean we don't go into the old patterns sometimes. And we, what we need to do is have compassion for ourselves when we do that and say, oh, there, you know, I mean, we want to go from, you know, I mean, there's points in time when, when we want to tell the critical parent voice to fuck off, but if there's other points, sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. This is a totally, ex- no, we are totally <laughs> real know, here. Eventually, eventually what we want to do is kind of laugh at it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's trying to t- control us with, with stuff that doesn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and you, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I should, I mean, it's fighting a noble fight to try to protect us, but it's doing it. You know, the, the ego is all focused on survival and we're not going to. You know, it's like, like I say in my book, we learn to fear and ignore death and to never live life. What we want to do in recovery is learn to live life and be, be open to feeling joy and, and love and, and peace on in some of the moments of every day. Yeah. 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 That's what I find this work does for you is, is it doesn't make us immune to being human, but it integrates in a real experiential way joy and peace and trust in the background in spite of some of the chaos or despair you know when things are falling down or falling apart around us or not going well or some asshole shows up or whatever our hearts get broken we have a much more deeply rooted sense of self yeah but you know the thing i i came to what helped me is uh, seeing the there's like 
two planes. There's a horizontal and a vertical. And the horizontal is about being human and relating to other humans in our environment. Uh-huh. And on the horizontal, it's about doing, accomplishing, experiencing, you know, and we got talk, taught to focus on the horizontal and be human doings, you yeah. know. Yeah. On the vertical, it's about our relationship with the universe, with a higher power, with whatever you want to call it. And on the vertical, it's about being. And we could, you know, we can learn when we're being in the moment, we can ask, I believe there's a, a transcendent vibrational emotional energy that is love and joy and truth and beauty that we can access by being in the moment. Yeah. And the easiest place for most of us to do that is with nature mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or with little kids or with animals. Yeah. The hardest places with other humans because that's where all our wounds are and all our defenses are, you know. Yeah. But what we want to do is start learning how to have a, a, a balance between being and doing and to be able to stop and be in this moment right now and feel joy no matter what happened yesterday and no matter what might happen tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. Um, well, you kind of answered, you answered all my questions almost organically, um, (laughs) about the point of even doing all this work, but I wanted to give people an opportunity to find you, get more from you and your, in, and your book, the, so if you want to give people kind of how to find you and what you're, are you still doing counseling and, and coaching, Robert? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing I, telephone counseling and, and Skype. I've got clients in Finland, Ireland, Lebanon, Spain, Australia, all over the world. So Okay. That's what I thought. It doesn't matter what culture they came in. They all got codependent issues. <laughs> exactly. How many years have you been doing this work now? Well, I started doing the telephone counseling in 1990, but I started doing inner child. I was doing inner child healing work starting about 1990. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, no, 2000, I started the, the, the phone counseling. I was doing it small group, inner tribe grief groups before that. But. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, give people all the different ways to get a hold of you. Well, the, the, uh, the main way is my website is uh, it's joy to me you. My, when, I went, when, I, when I started my company, Joy to You and Me Enterprises, uh-huh. I went to DMV to get a personalized license plate and they didn't have joy to me you they had joy or they didn't have joy to you and me they had joy to me you which is actually healthier for a codependent you know but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's joy j-o-y the number two and then m-e letter u okay dot com and I, dot com and that, that's my main website it's got like 250 pages of free material and then i have a new uh newer uh it's an old it's that's it's Got in an old program. It's not. It's not mobile friendly, so I have a new one that's Joy to Me You Two, the number two again. Okay. So J O Y two, the number two M E letter U number two dot com. So. Okay, and I'll make sure to to put this in the show notes too. But um, and then your book, can people still get that? Yeah, they can get it through uh through my website. I can personally autograph it, or they can get it through Amazon. Or Barnes and Noble or Kobo, they have e- ebooks. Yeah, and the and the uh, audio book too. I listen to yeah. it on audio too, and that is Codependence Dance of the Wounded. Codependence, the Dance of the Wounded Soul. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That so is. They, they can search for my name on Amazon. It's Robert Bernie B U R N E Y. So. Well, as far as I'm concerned, everyone should start with some Robert Bernie. That's all I. <laughs> That's how I feel about it, because cool. if it hadn't have been for you, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I would have been able to heal as rapidly as I did. I feel like when I say rapidly, I remember reaching out to you at one point. I don't, and you probably don't remember this because I know you communicate with so many people, but it felt like I was moving through stuff so quickly once I found you and you gave me permission to sift through all this emotional material um it was it was it was a lot it was a lot and I'm, not that i'm arrived or anything like that but it was 34 years of repressed stuff that and like two anyway it was amazing you're amazing i'm so glad well, you're out there 
<laughs> Good. Well, and, and the thing is, is we need to align with the process and start being loving to ourselves. You know, we, we, when, as long as we're trying to control the symptoms and judging and shaming ourselves, it doesn't go very fast. You know? I think that's what I think that exactly. I think that's what was happening for me. I was trying to control the symptoms through positive thinking and manifesting boards and just controlling my thoughts and my ego. I was totally controlling the symptoms. Well, that you know, the 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 law of attraction stuff is taught in a way that that really sets up codependence because part of the codependence think part of the codependence is destination thinking, which we learn from fairy tales that there's a destination to reach, and there is no destination to reach, you yeah. know. And so when they they start telling people that uh, you know that that they can create anything they want in their life, that's bullshit. They can't create anything they want in their life. We need to open to the possibility of creating anything we want in our life. But the law of karma trumps the law of attraction. I love that. I love that. I love that you're dispelling these black and white myths because you're well, right. People people think they should, you know, they should have a million dollars and then they don't have it. And then they judge and shame themselves and think they're doing it wrong. I you know. know. <laughs> Suda, yeah. It's ludicrous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed that my ebook on the law of attraction misunderstood and misinterpreted. No. Do you have an ebook on it? Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> I'm going to download this. Is it on your website? Uh, no, it's through Amazon. Okay, okay, okay. I'll I, have to I okay. follow up. It's uh, emotional energy, uh, metaphysics, metaphysics of emotions is a follow-up book to it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. Well, I'm going to dig into those, and I may have to have you back on to talk about some of that stuff. That's fascinating. Yay. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on today, Robert. Well, I'm ha happy to be here. Hey, so you know if you made it this far, you're like officially a whole human triber and we're bonded for life. My deep, deep request is that you help me out and subscribe in iTunes, leave a five-star review if that feels in alignment. Um, maybe four-star, you know, I don't know, three-star, whatever you feel like you need to do. I'm just a human starting out in something that I don't know what the hell I'm doing, so hopefully I'll be better in six months. Please come find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Remember, I do not take myself too seriously. I'm just sharing the wisdoms and the insights that I've gained from being on my path um, here for this space for 23 years. Um, definitely not an actualized human being. If that resonates with you, share it with a friend who you think might be inspired as well. This is so funny. I know no one's listening. Whole Human, the hashtag is a great way, and Megan Blanchard, the hashtag is a great way to um, get into contact with me also at my website, meganblanchard.com. That's Megan with a Y and, um, sign up to be on my list for exclusive invites and private content that you won't get anywhere else from me and all love. Thanks for being here. <laughs>